Open up your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Be fine in your place there, Mark chapter 10. And uh, we'll, we'll begin here in just a moment looking in verse 17. So if you'll scroll down to that, if you've got your smartphone or your tablet and you want to you find that there. Um, we've been looking at Jesus's words of eternal life. You remember Peter, we started out with Peter and uh, all of the disciples of Jesus were going off away from him because of some hard words that Jesus said. And then Jesus looked out at the 12 apostles and he said to them, are you going to go away as well? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. So we've been examining some of the words of eternal life. And we're going to hear Jesus say today to the rich young ruler He's going to say to this young man who who approaches Jesus asking about eternal life, he's going to say to him, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. That's some that's a hard statement. But you you think it on the outset, Okay, just one thing and that's it. Well, what we find out from the story is this one thing that this man lacks is everything. And what ultimately what he lacks is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. That's what he needs more than anything else. Um, I've got this, uh, this echo dot that I brought from my house. Any of you have one of these in your house? An echo, Amazon, anything, uh, Alexa. So if, if this were plugged in and I said Alexa, it would light up blue and she would be ready to take my request. Uh, she's a servant in our house, uh, and she serves the master of the house. Until one of my boys decides that they're going to speak up after it turns blue. So I'll say, Alexa, it turns blue, and Micah loves to do this especially. He'll run up and he'll say, you know, play whatever. And that's not what I was telling it to do. I, I wanted to know what time it is or whatever. And so Micah runs up, and, and, and then here's the thing. If we try to speak at the same time, Alexa will just sit there for a second with blue, and then it'll go, and then go back to just nothing. Like, Alexa has a hard time listening to two people at the same time. And you know what? Here's the truth about that is that I say that to say we all have that same difficulty. And we're wired a certain way. We're programmed a certain way by God. And here's the biblical truth that I want you to see from the text today. Is that no one can serve two masters, but everyone must serve one. And that means that there's going to be a master of your life. There's going to be a Lord of your life. You can't serve two at the same time. But by default, you will serve one. At least one. So the question is, and it was the same question that Jesus was was poking and prodding at this young man, and it is, who is your master? Who's your Lord? Who's in charge of your life? Have you found your place in Mark 10? Go ahead and stand with me. Go ahead and stand up. We'll read it together. Stand out of the honor of God's word. And if you look at verse... 17, in my title, it says the rich young man. And we piece it together and we see that he's a a ruler from Luke's gospel. And we see that this same person shows up in all three of the synoptic gospels. And it says in verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Verse 22 says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We're going to stop there. and Let's pray together. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear God, for inviting us, ushering us in to your presence this morning. Thank you that you are here today. Thank you that just like this rich young ruler, you love every one of us. You look upon us with favor. Lord, you've proven your love by sending us your one and only son to die for us on a sinner's cross. Father, we thank you that you have a plan and purpose for each of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that now in your presence, Lord, you align our hearts with your will. You would illumine your word, Father, that we would understand. And Lord, that which we have understanding, to that which we have understanding, that you would add obedience. That we might depart from your presence, ready and willing to do all that you've commanded. And Lord, that we would be found faithful. And that it may all be for the glory and honor and fame, name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We sing a lot about coming and dying. Jesus is telling this man to come and die to his idol and live for Jesus. Well, as we we look at the scripture, I want to break it down in just a couple of things. I want us to see the man, and then I want to see the master, and then I want to see the message, the heart of the message. And first, let's look at the man. Look at verses 17 and 18 again, and we learn a few things here from Mark's gospel, and you can look at the other gospels, the other synoptic gospels, and see a few other uh, things about this man. And when I say synoptic, what that means is that they they look the same. That's what the word synoptic means. That those gospels look the same. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all three of the synoptics. John's a little bit different. He does his own thing, okay? Uh, but so we look at Mark, and we see the verse 17, the first verse of the passage, and as he was setting out on his journey, he being Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so first, let's think about his qualities for just a moment. He's enthusiastic. Like if you were to talk about this man, this guy's a good guy, okay? He's a, he's a wonderful man. We've got a lot of good things to t- say about this guy. He was eager. He came running to Jesus, He didn't wait for the crowd to get out of the way. He went through the crowd and made his way to Jesus. He went straight to Jesus. He went directly to Jesus. And he was enthusiastic about it. We see he's also humble. He came kneeling at Jesus' feet. Knelt before him. And so he was a humble person. He, He didn't mind laying his pride down. 
to kneel before someone he believed to be important. But here's the thing. You can't just tip the hat to Jesus. You're required to bow the knee. And in doing that, you're required to bow your heart at the same time. So he's enthusiastic. He's humble. He's also discerning. And this man, he, he was so discerning that he calls Jesus good teacher. You notice that? He ran up to him and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he, he understands that there's something different about Jesus. Some people, they understand that there's value in everything. And they just understand the value and worth of stuff. Some people, they know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And they, they, they see what they can get out of everything. But this man, he understood that Jesus was different. And so he was enthusiastic, he was humble, he was discerning, he was spiritually minded, and you notice that he's going to a Jewish rabbi to ask one of life's most important questions. As far as life and questions go, this is probably the most important question that you can ask. It's a spiritual question. He's spiritually minded. He wants to know about spiritual things, so he's come to this rabbi. We can go on reading in the story, and he says in verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So we see that he's not only discerning and spiritually minded, he's also morally pure, morally clean. And that's a good thing, right? We don't look bad on someone who's keeping the commandments. That's not a bad thing. The Bible talks about keeping the law of the Lord with your heart and desiring to honor him. There's nothing in the story that says this man was a bad person. He was a good person as far as we uh, are concerned, as far as we say good. I mean, he was a good person. He was successful. Now, if we go ahead and look at the other Gospels, we find out not only is he young, but he's rich and he's a ruler. And so that's where we get he's not just a man in Mark's Gospel here. He's a rich man. And he's a young man. And so at at an early age, he's successful. He he probably was among the who's who of Jewish society. But he became a who's not of the Bible. We never find out this man's name. We don't ever see a picture of him coming to faith in Jesus. Ultimately, we see that this is a tragic story. Because the man goes away not believing in Jesus. So we see his qualities. I want you to see, secondly, his quest. And so we look at those three descriptive terms that we apply to this man is that he's rich. I mean, he would have entered into any uh, Baptist church, 20th century, 21st century Baptist church, and we would make him the church treasurer because he just he's good with money. He's at a young age. He's made it. And he's making uh, himself prosper. And then you also see that he's young. And you see that in Matthew's gospel, verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 20. It says that he's a young man. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Jerry Vines writes, and he says, how tragic it would be 
to give the devil the flower of your life and then offer the Lord your stem. It's good for young people to seek the Lord at an early age. And this man, he's seeking the Lord. He's desiring spiritual things. He's spiritually minded. He's morally clean. And he's asking the right question. To find out also that he's a ruler, this man was very important. According to Luke's gospel, he was a ruler. Power, prestige, position, and possessions. He had it all, you might say. But what does Jesus say to him? One thing you lack. So we see his qualities, his quest, and I, I also think about his question. So let's think about the question that he, that he asks Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Some of the other gospels say. So he's asking Jesus, what can he do? What thing does he need to do to inherit eternal life? We've already said that eternal life doesn't simply mean long, uh, years of life. It means year, uh, life to your years. Like making sure that you live in a way that is godly and not just that, that you prosper on this earth spiritually You have spiritual life welling up inside of you, a fountain of living water that lives inside of you. And this is what eternal life is really about. Yes, we will live forever, but don't you want to live forever with God? And that's the question. Some of us have avoided that question. And we're... Busying ourselves with our day-to-day so that we won't have to think about it. We're living our lives in the fast lane. And we try not to slow down long enough to think about the fact of where that lane is headed. The inevitable is that we all are going to die. And we're going to face eternity. Well, this rich young man at a young age was asking the right question. But Jesus' answer seems abrupt. He answers the question with another question. You notice how Jesus does that a lot. He answers questions with questions. I like to do that too. It annoys people, but Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? And then Jesus goes on to say, no one is good except God alone. And as Jesus says that, he's revealing two truths to this young man. He's revealing the first truth. And the first one is that the rich man himself is not good. Because he said, no one is good except God alone. And so he's telling that young man, you're not good. They're not good. Only God is good. And you need to come to grips with that. I think our culture around us and our society wants to teach that everyone is born innocent and we're all innately good by nature. I can prove that to you in just about five minutes. All you have to do is walk with me over to the nursery and I'll prove it to you. That we're not born innocent. We're born with a sin nature. Only God is good. 
So he's revealing that the rich man himself is not good, but he's revealing a second truth, and that is that Jesus himself is God. Now, the the rich man just proclaimed this whenever he called Jesus good. Good teacher. In other words, if Jesus is saying only God is good, Jesus is saying, well, he's standing before you. Now, maybe the rich man got that, maybe he didn't. But Jesus is saying, not only is the rich man not good, but Jesus himself is God and very good. Romans three ten through 12, as it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's you, that's me, that's every person you've ever met on the face of this planet. Every person who's ever walked this planet, save the Lord Jesus Christ. Adrian Rogers used to say, proud men at their best are sinners at their worst. The worst form of badness is human goodness when human goodness becomes a substitute for the new birth. Now, I'll tell you another thing that Adrian Rogers used to say too is, I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes I ever lived to get me to heaven. No man is truly converted until he realizes that he is a sinner in the sight of Almighty God. And so Jesus' words might seem harsh, but we remember that when Jesus' words are hard, it's because they have to penetrate through the hardness of the human heart. That's the reason Jesus' words are abrupt and hard to this young man. Because he needs to be confronted with his own sinfulness. And so we see the man, and we see that he is a sinner, even though we might call him a good man, using our terminology today, and by worldly standards, we'd say he was a good man. Jesus says he's a sinner. We see the man, but then let's see the master and see what he does in this confrontation with this man. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm good and you're bad. Jesus asks him a very pointed question. He goes on, Look at Jesus' investigation here. He says, you know the commandments. Now, that's a a statement. You know the commandments. Jesus knows as as a young man in Jewish society, especially one who's a ruler and reached the status that this young man has, he knows that he's gone through this school, a rabbinical school. He's getting his... Bar mitzvah whenever he's at age 12, and he understands that he knows the commandments front and back. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And so Jesus is listing out the Ten Commandments. Well, listen to the young man's response. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, don't miss this and don't make this mistake. Jesus is not teaching that through the keeping of the law, you can earn your salvation. He's not teaching that eternal life comes through keeping the commandment. What Jesus just did for this young man is he, took, he used the commandment to reveal sin that was in him. And Paul says that the commandments, they, when they came alive in his heart, when Paul learned of the commandments... 
The commandment killed him. It slew him. Because here's the problem. None of us keep them. What he's revealing to this young man is he's not a commandment keeper. He's not a law keeper. He's a law breaker. He's one that's broken all of these. And even though the man believes in his heart that he's kept them all, truly, he's broken them. And if we go on and we listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, through faith, uh, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You cannot earn your way into eternal life by doing good things. Romans 3 and verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Paul goes on to say, through sin, death enters in. Isn't it mean for Jesus to point that out? No. Jesus is offering words of eternal life. And Jesus is telling the man, the master is saying to the man, one thing you lack. If you were able to climb that ladder with this man and you were to reach up to the very, very top, you'd realize that there's at least a few rungs missing. And you can never reach heaven by your own effort. The mercy and grace of God means absolutely nothing until you realize that you are a sinner in the sight of a holy and righteous God. And so Jesus' investigation, Jesus's investigation leads this man to look at himself. Jesus looked at him, loving him, said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now Jesus' words... Pinpoint one place directly. Now, he could have taken any of those ten commandments and he could have shown this man how he had broken the commandments. But what does he do? He, took, he takes that one command, thou shalt not, what? Covet. He takes that one command out of the ten and he exposes how this man is covetous in his heart. And because he's covetous, he's broken that one law And breaking that one law means that he's broken all of them. Listen to James 2.10. Forever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So he exposes that one command and how this man has broken it. So the Bible says in verse 22... Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. But what did Jesus say? He said, come and follow me. That's his invitation. Jesus is saying, go and give that up. Go give up the the idol of gold. 
They'll give up your covetousness. He's just revealed that this man's God is gold and that his creed is greed and and that the love of everything that he has has replaced the love of God in his heart. And he has failed also to love his neighbor as himself because Jesus said, go and give it to the poor. And he's not willing to do that. So not only does he not love God, which is the first half of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 1 through 4 is about loving God. And the rest of the commandments, 6 through 10, those are uh, 5 through 10, those are about loving your neighbor as yourself. And this man has broken the totality of the law because he has an idol in his heart. No man can serve two masters, but he must serve one. Jesus offers this man the opportunity to lay that idol down and follow him. And he does the same thing for each and every one of us. See, the problem with Christianity today is that many people believe that they can just add Jesus on top of their idol. I can keep, I can have Jesus, and I can keep my idol too. And what Jesus wants to do for you and me today is He wants to wreck that understanding. He wants to tear it apart. He wants to ruin that for you. And if that means that your whole life is turned upside down, Jesus knows that that will lead to eternal life when that idol is toppled from your life. But it's got to come down. And we talk about idols. Well, what are idols? Idols are anything that take the place of devotion, worship and devotion in your heart that belongs only to Jesus. I mean, it can be, it can be just about anything. You can make anything an idol. I mean... What, some of the things that we make work, our relationships, our possessions like this man, our passions, the things that drive us, our recreation, our desire, a thing, a person, even animals. I knew a lady one time that had 30 cats living in her house with her. We called her the cat lady. That's the best we could come up with, I guess. And those cats ran her life. Well, Paul is giving a report of the Thessalonian church, and the Thessalonian church, Paul was only with them for three weeks. He taught them everything that he could teach them, and then he had to leave. And he's just writing back in First Thessalonians chapter. 1 verse 9, he's telling, he's giving them a, a commendation for being a righteous church and a pure church, the church that God wants them to be. And this is what he says, for they themselves report concerning us. He's talking about the other churches around the Thessalonian church. They're talking to Paul about the Thessalonians. And he says, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
So what were these? What was this church doing? What were the Thessalonians doing? They were bringing their idols and throwing them in the rubbish heap, and they were turning from them, and they were turning to the true and living God. In other words, they were doing what the Bible calls repentance. They were turning away. They were changing their mind, and they were fixing their hearts and minds on Jesus. Luke 13 and verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, here's the thing. You're going to hold on to that idol. You're holding on to the railing of the Titanic because it's going to take you down with it. No repentance. No redemption. If you don't have a change of mind that leads to a change of life, you're not following Jesus. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now let's just stop there for just a second and think about that phrase. And what he says uh, happens, what, what Mark records for us is that he, this man was disheartened by the saying. As some of your translations say he was sad. It just puts it sad. The word, there's only two times the word is used in the Greek New Testament. And in, in that context there, Jesus is talking about how sailors can look at the sky in the morning and see that it's red. And if it's red and cloudy in the morning, then sailors take warning, right? So Jesus is using that as an illustration. And, and in that context, he's talking about the sky and, and the, the word that he uses is the sky is sad. Or gloomy. And and so if you look at the face of this man. When Jesus says to him. Go and sell all of your possessions. And give to the poor. And you'll have treasures in heaven. And come and follow me. The face of that man. Begins to cloud over. Like a red sky in the morning. And it begins to. To kind of mist in his eyes a little bit. And everything about the countenance of this man turns gloomy. Instead of turning from his idol to Jesus, he turns away from Jesus and walks back to his idol. Was he sad? Yeah. He was sad. And there's many of us, many Christians today have had an experience of feeling sad about their sin. Feeling sad about what... They'll have to do for the Lord to turn to Him. But they've never turned. Feeling A feeling of sorrow or regret cannot save you. It's not about a feeling of sadness that saves us. There's not enough sorrow in the human heart to save anyone. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, it says. Notice the part that it says where it says he went away. In other words, he felt sorrowful, but at the same time, he totally rejected Jesus. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. That turning that goes in the direction of Jesus, away from idols toward Jesus, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The moment that he turned from Jesus is the moment that he turned away from the master that could offer eternal life. And he turned to death. 
Well, let's see. We've seen the man and the master. Let's see the message for just a moment. Look again with me in verses 23 and following. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, and Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Some of your translations keep one tradition that says how difficult it will be for those who trust in their possessions to enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say in verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, how difficult. But notice he he says difficult, but he doesn't say impossible. He says it's difficult. And then he goes on to use an absurd uh, illustration. And he says the camel can't easily go through the eye of a needle. I mean, you can imagine the disciples sitting there listening to Jesus and they all just start laughing and snickering at the idea of shoving a camel through the eye of a needle. Some people have tried to explain this with some historical information that there was this small gate that led into the city of, of one of the cities in Israel and a camel trying to go under that would have to crouch down and go under the pack would have to be taken off its back, its burden lifted off its back and it could be shoved through the small gate that went through. I don't know if that's the truth or not. There's not really any historical evidence to back that up. There's some speculation about it. And then other people think, well, okay, the word camel actually is a different, there's a different word in Greek, and maybe it was just a little bit of a, a difference there that might have gotten lost. And that, that word means rope and how difficult it is to put a rope through the eye of a needle. But even that's absurd. And what you, what you find out is that Jesus' words mean that it is extremely difficult. What does he mean? Why is it difficult? In their context, a rich person was blessed by God. And even in our context today, some churches and some pulpits, we would say, you're absolutely blessed because you have these things, these possessions. We're blessed to live in the land of plenty. We're blessed to have plenty. And material things are our God in America. I mean, that's the number one God that we serve in America. And it's why we do all the things that we do that are evil in America. Because of materialism. The exact opposite is true. Sometimes the devil will give you just enough things to keep you from seeing your spiritual need. He's blinded the eyes of a whole generation of people that live in the United States of America and other prosperous places in the, in the world around us. He's blinded our eyes so that we'll hold tightly to the things of this world and whenever the Master walks by, we'll just let Him keep walking. Jesus says how difficult it is 
for those people to open their eyes and see their need, their desperate need for eternal life. As Americans, we spend more on soda and coffee individually every day than the majority of the world has to live on for that whole day for all of their basic needs. I mean, that's food, clothing, shelter, transportation, everything, health care needs. Jesus says it's difficult, but then he goes on to say it's not impossible. See, even, even the disciples realize how truly blessed they are. Even though they've left everything else behind and they've sacrificed it all so that they can come and follow Jesus, they realize they've got food in their belly, they've got shoes on their feet, they've got a roof over their head. They're okay. They can exist the way that they live. And they say, wow, this is amazing. And they were exceedingly astonished, verse 26. And they said to them, then then who can be saved? Because we all have more than we need. They say, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. In other words, if I were going to flush all the idols out of my life and and get rid of all of them myself, I'd never succeed. I can't do it in my own power. I need his help. I need Him to do this for me. What He wants first is my heart. So He says, with man is impossible. In other words, this man, He could have never accomplished selling all of His possessions and giving them all to the poor on His own. He says, but with God. But with God. Not with God. For all things are possible with God. In other words, that if this man had chosen to give his heart to Jesus right then and there, Jesus would have helped him cast down that idol, become a generous man in the place where he was covetous, become a man whose heart was only after God, become not a lawbreaker but a lawkeeper from his heart. And rivers of living water would have flowed out of this man. And he would have become a new person. The moment that he would have said yes to Jesus. And no to his idol. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. For either will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The reason that the disciples were able to leave everything behind was because Jesus already had their heart. I wonder, does he have your heart today? The problem with the man was that not that he had possessions, it's that his possessions had him. They had his heart. They had a hold on him. What has a hold on you today? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and Hear what the Word says. God is calling every man, woman, boy and girl all the way up to the, from the age of accountability up to the 
how the oldest person in the room, he's calling every one of us to repent from trusting in earthly things and put our faith in the one true living God today. Have you repented of your sin? Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you've never done that, I want to tell you, Jesus is passing by and He's waiting on you to run to Him, to kneel before Him, to surrender your heart to Him, and to say, you are the master of my life. I will serve you and you alone. If you're willing to do that, Jesus will give you eternal life. And I want to lead you in a prayer. Why don't you pray a prayer like this in your heart? Say, dear Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I've done things I know are wrong and I have failed to do things that I know are right. And I deserve to be separated from you forever. But Jesus, I believe that you made a way for me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that you were raised again on the third day and that you are alive and that you are the Lord of all. And so I come to you now. I give you my heart. I repent of my sin. I turn to you. Forgive me, Jesus. Give me a home in heaven with you. I want to spend the rest of my life serving you as my one true Lord and Master. Thank you for my salvation. In your holy and wonderful name I pray. Amen. And will you stand with us? If you've prayed that prayer this morning, the Bible says that Jesus hears that prayer. That by believing in your heart and confessing that you've just made Jesus your Lord and Savior. And He's given you a home in heaven and He's written your name down in the Lamb's book of life. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's not meant to be held in. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be expressed. And we're giving you the opportunity to do that now. Don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone's ashamed of me before men, then I will be ashamed of him when my Father comes with his holy angels. Before my Father with his holy angels. And so here's the thing. You do what Jesus tells you to do right now during this invitation. Come and let it be known what Jesus has done for you. That we might celebrate together. If you're looking for a place to call home, you know that God is leading you to Myrtle Grove Baptist Church to be a member of this church, to serve and worship together and learn and grow together. You come. And if you just need prayer, our prayer counselors will be here at the altar. We'll be praying for you and with you. And you can just pray right there where you are. But don't, don't waste this invitation. Use it to the glory of God. Let us sing.